Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Hello and welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. I'm Susan Larson. This week we'll be talking with Donna Glee Williams, whose new novel is The Night Field. I am so happy to welcome Donna Glee Williams to The Reading Life. She's lived all over the world, had all kinds of jobs, and now makes her home in the Blue Ridge Mountains. But she has deep roots in Louisiana. She did her undergraduate work at Tulane and then pursued graduate studies at Louisiana State University. And today we're talking about her fascinating new novel, The Night Field. Donna Glee, welcome. Susan, I am so glad to be home. This is just a wonderful opportunity to chat with you again after all these years. It's been a while. Now, the whole time I was reading this novel, I felt like I was in another world. And it was an entirely beautifully created world of your creation. So talk about what it took to build this world, because it's very complicated and very complete. Yes, it was a complicated story for me. It took a, a lot of years and decades of walking around in the forests of the Blue Ridge Mountains and in the swamps of Louisiana, uh, just being very intimate with the trees and with the ecosystem and the smells and the sights. And then it took just imagining myself into my main character's body. One of the inspirations of this book came from some things that really do exist in our waking world, one of them being the Cassie tree bridges. The Cassie Hills in India is perhaps the wettest place on earth, a place where wood would rot. And someone sent me a beautiful little micro video uh, showing a little girl being taught by her father how to encourage trees to become bridges so that they have this architecture of living wood. Living wood does not rot. Dead wood does. And as a fantasy writer, my brain did that. <laughs> what if? What if there was a whole culture that was built on cooperation and collaboration with plants instead of harvesting and using plants? And that's when I began to ask that chain of questions that would lead to creating the land, the people, the beliefs, the practices of early people before there was a rupture with nature. Well, let's talk a little bit about the trees in this book, because they speak. They do. I love that. You know, trees have become 
such characters in books lately. I think of Richard Powers, The Overstory, and Annie Prue's Barkskins. So we're starting to learn more about them and, and see them in new ways. And that video you described earlier turned into one of the most beautiful scenes in the book mm-hmm. of your main character and her father creating a bridge. Mm-hmm. That was the first page that I ever wrote of this story, beginning uh-huh. to to imagine myself in the pen boy and uh, getting her voice. And as I got her voice, I began to get the world. And as I got the world, I began to get the problem. And the problem led to the plot. And the problem is very familiar, actually. So talk a little bit about the geography of this world, which is very specific and well-documented in your book. Yes. uh, This world happens uh, in a uh, lowland, wet uh, place uh, at the foot of a great escarpment. And we have places like that on our real world, but I just imagined it bigger, uh, a, a cliff that was so high that it was spiritual spiritually viewed as unclimbable, so that you had these folks living uh, down at the base of a mighty rock face that they could never imagine getting to the top of. And then you had a different sort of folk living up on the flatlands uh, way up above. And there is not much communication between those two. There's hints that there may have been communications. Each have beliefs about the other, Mm -hmm. but they are essentially alien people to each other. So tell us about Pinpoy's quest in this book. Well, she, like many of our people um, of Louisiana, experience the downstream effects of toxicities. And they don't know where it comes from, and they don't know what causes it. They do know that it is destroying their world, and it is killing their people. And this is the classic um, hero's journey call to her Mm -hmm. to go find what the problem is and fix it. So in spite of strong cultural beliefs and even taboos against climbing too high on that wall, uh, she sets out with the intention to go up to the world above and face what they believe are their ancestors and demand an accounting. Why are you sending the, these horrors down onto us? And you got to stop it, folks. The power of one angry woman. The power of one angry woman. Propels her upward. And even more specifically, one angry young woman. Exactly. Uh, I, uh, I feel a presence of um, Joan of Arc energy here, of Greta Thunberg energy, mm-hmm. of uh, a lot of the teenage folks that are looking around and saying, this has to stop, folks, and not waiting for their elders to find solutions, but just going ahead and taking their own survival into their own hands today. The thing I love about her most is that she has such a keen sense of observation and how to use what she sees and what she's learned. And she's resolute in those quests, I think. And I'm really fascinated by the role of language for her because she reaches a place where she has no language 
and she has to learn to communicate in different ways. So talk a little bit about the language issues in this book. Well, the language issues are probably part of my personal biographical trauma because I was born in Mexico, uh, the child of uh, two predominantly English-speaking people. So I have had the experience of moving back and forth between countries Mm -hmm. uh, several times in early childhood and having the experience of, uh, say, starting school in a Spanish school and not understanding anything around me. And then uh, moving to the United States and arriving here as a kid with a strong uh, Mexican-Spanish accent and being treated as other and given speech therapy and uh, all of that. Uh, So the issues of the, the, the person that is stuck in a situation where they cannot communicate is probably um, imprinted in me. But it also probably has a a deeper uh, metaphorical meaning of regarding the people that have ideas that must be communicated and the language doesn't seem to be enough to -hmm. get it across. In Penpoy's case, the language of the solutions, you know, the language that she brings as something of an insider-outsider to Mm -hmm. this new world where she knows things and has insights that could help them, but she has to get it into their language before they will be useful. Well, one of the things you do so well is communicate her fury when she can't communicate or understand. Yes, yes. That is so frustrating. I I just have such heart for for people that are trying to function in in a a situation where they are not speaking their their dominant language. Well, tell me about the origin of her name. The names in this book are so different. You know they're not English names. That is always a challenge for people writing second world fiction, because Mm -hmm. uh, if you make things that are too similar to a people that already exist in this world, then you are in danger of being too culturally specific to this world and, uh-huh. and, and creating the expectations that the people you're talking about are, in fact, uh, some version of this world. And uh, and I really didn't want that. And in fact, uh, it was beautiful. My editors worked with me. They, they actually um, sent it out to speakers of other language to help identify, are any of these words or any of these names something that have meaning or are connected with your uh, culture? Because if they are, we can tweak you know, we how can, painstaking! Yeah, That's fantastic. Yeah. I worked with a team of the mighty. I, I oh. tell you, I, the um, the overarching editor on this was Joe Fletcher, who was the mm-hmm. editor for Ursula K. Le Guin for uh, almost twenty years. And, and this has that feeling. Well, I was uh, working with this editor was probably one of the high points of my life. She is, her powers are 
so supernatural to be almost shamanic. It was almost like she has access to the story as it exists in some other story space, and I have access, and she could could feel for what might be there and send me to get it, you know. Mm -hmm. She is an amazing... And she had a team. Um, there was a, another one called Ian Critchley who helped impose a, a sort of um, a, a very firm continuity and consistency on my naming conventions, you know, oh. because when when I was writing a discovery uh, draft, I was very casual about whether I called something um, a, a deer or a um, jumping cat or a hunting cat <laughs> and everything. And, you know, uh, when they they had a very gifted, what we would call a line editor, to, to, mm -hmm. uh, I think in Britain they have different terminology for that, uh, but to go through and really ensure, because when you're creating a second world, um, the the consistency of small details is part of the workmanship that make people right. willing to go along and believe that there is a sturdiness here. There is a fundamental uh, reality that this language is alluding to. Well, how did you keep track of it? I mean, did you draw this world? Did you make notes on post-its and cover the walls with it? Or what oh, did you do? That is really funny because uh, during part of this time, I, I did go to a wonderful uh, workshop, uh, uh, an intensive led by a very great uh, fantasy writer from the Midwest called Kitch Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and she is a tremendous planner and thinker of stories. And I am exactly the opposite. And so I... <laughs> I went through this experience, and I came home with a massive sheet of butcher paper with just a whole rainbow of Post-it notes on it, and I didn't <laughs> write again for a year. It was so contrary to my... Oh kind of process and it, and it just hung in my kitchen like accusing me oh, every no. day and and finally I just tore it down bundled it into the trash can and started fresh doing it my way uh, you know having metabolized a lot of that sure uh, but but doing it in more uh, the uh, I don't know if your listeners will be familiar with the terms uh, plotters and pantsers, but in science fiction <laughs> we talk about plotters, the people that create outlines and plans and, you know, think about arcs and, 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 and uh, you know, just real systematic approaches to story. And then the pantsers are those of us who fly by the seat of our pants. And if I knew how a story was going to end... Why would I write it? You, you know, well, it, it, discovery. It's, it's discovery for me. That's why you called it a discovery draft. Exactly. So I am more that kind. And you know, as you bring the book then through the long phases of editing, that's when the editor part of me uh, gets in and, and tries to create shaping and, and, and sculpt the material more and, you know, find the, the lines of continuity that I, I want to be faithful to. But in the origin, uh, no, it was just a, a sloppy mass. <laughs> well, I want people to have a sense of Pinpoy's voice and your writing voice as well. So I wonder if you'd read a section of the night field for us when she's getting ready to set off on her journey. Yes. 
The night before the climb, it took me a long time to realize that I was afraid. I could not sleep, but I thought it was because the nibblers were buzzing more loudly than usual. Or maybe it was because the air pressed around me too closely, like it does sometimes under the trees, with a kind of hot heaviness that made my sweat sticky and sent sleep over the bridge and far away. I knew I should rest. I needed to be strong tomorrow. But my hammock strings pressed hard into my skin and the snoring of the household taunted me. They were sleeping fine, helped by the fruit beer from my adulthood feast. They were not the ones who would climb up right out of the reel as soon as dawn touched the leaves. They would stay here, in their right places. Even under attack by the evil stink, held by branches of kinship as sturdy as the ancient house tree itself, they would still be here, together. But someone would not. Someone would be ant-crawling up the stony wall, the bridge between the living and the ancestors. That is when I began to understand that I was afraid. This feeling that clogged my chest and backed up into my throat like stagnant water, it was fear, nothing but fear. I was a good climber, strong, not bulging strong in the arms like Pang and Ando, but smooth strong all over, like a pronghorn or a hunter cat. I had been up and down trees all my life, on my own since I could walk, and on Suk Suk's back before that. But this thing tomorrow, climbing the wall we do not climb, was different from climbing trees. No branches, no vines, and up there I would be alone in a new way. I had been alone before, of course. It takes a lot of solitude to learn to listen to trees, but this? Climbing away from my kin, from the people, away from the real itself. No friendly branches to offer me a second chance if my foot slipped. No one to help me hobble home, like that time when I had hurt my ankle in a tumble. No mother to mend my hurts. Alone, alone, alone. A person always climbs alone, really. But where I was going, no one would find me if I fell. I love that. And she perseveres. And she perseveres. And she has a complete life in this book. Yeah. yeah. So I hope everybody reads it. <laughs> it's just me too. The night field is such um well tell us what the night field means. Where the title comes from. Well the the title comes from a little piece of land that she carves out from the bigger, catastrophically uh, oppressed monoculture around her. She winds up, like many human beings have wound up, uh, entangled in something 
a kind of agricultural slavery that is reminiscent of chattel slavery and sharecropping and uh, Nazi work camps and the uh, U.S. fruit companies, banana plantations, and the prison farms that are operating even today in even our country. Today. And there, for the first time in her life, she sees monoculture. She sees the land being forced to bear only one kind of plant. And this is so twistedly unnatural that to make this work, they have to pour on uh, massive amounts of pesticides and chemical fertilizers. And due to some catastrophes, some part of this land falls uh, unused, and she reclaims it, what we would say today, rewilds it, mm -hmm. uh, to grow plants, fruitful, beneficent plants, in a natural way. And um, it's a key concept in the book because it is also true in this world that we laughingly call the real world, um, that when you do take a piece of land or water and stop um, defying uh, nature's laws, that it can heal. This mm -hmm. is one of the basic principles of eco-tipping points. Uh, eco-tipping points um, theory uh, has studied successful environmental uh, interventions all around the world. And one of the key principles, I would say, is that if you can let nature do the work, mm -hmm. the healing can happen. And so this is one fictional representation of that thing that has been seen over and over again. You know, when wolves were reintroduced to a certain place or when a certain area of a coastline is set aside as a preserve and the fisheries come back or when certain things are done to uh, harvest rainwater. If you find the right eco-tipping points lever, uh, healing can happen. And I should mention that the founder of the Eco-Tipping Points Project, Dr. Gerald Martin, who um, was uh, a professional ecologist with the New Orleans uh, uh, mosquito control back in the 80s and early 90s, mm -hmm. crafted a series of questions for discussion that go with this book so that people that read it that want to uh, use it to explore ecotypic points theory as it appears in the book can go to my website, adonagleewilliams.com, get these questions that he, as an ecologist, not a literature guy, but an ecologist, has created for uh, maximizing the learning potential of the book. Well, you learn so much reading this book, and it's that vision of the night field returned is so joyful. Mm. That's an amazing moment. We've been talking with Donna Glee Williams, whose new novel is The Night Field. Donna Glee, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been such an honor to be with you. I really appreciate getting to chat with you about it. Such a great book. So congratulations. Thank you.
Here's what's on tap in the literary life this week. Matthew Gergich will read from Dixie the Cajun Fiddle Playing Pixie, Saturday, December 16th at 11 a.m. at the East Bank Regional Library. He'll be previewing figures that will be developed as characters at the planned Bayou Phoenix Entertainment Complex in New Orleans East. Jeanette Wyland and her artist mother, Roberta Van Zant Laughlin, signed their children's book, Red Beans and Rice, Saturday, December 16th from 10 to noon at the historic New Orleans Collection, then again Saturday, December 16th from 2 to 4 at the Louisiana Children's Museum. The two will also appear Sunday, December 17th from 2 to 4 at the Knock Knock Children's Museum in Baton Rouge. Teresa Tuminello Brader signs in Letting In Air and Light, Saturday, December 16th at 2 at Blue Cypress Books. The Southern Food and Beverage Museum is holding a book sale of hundreds of beautiful cookbooks, many in mint condition. Hours are Thursday through Monday from 11 to 5, and it is ongoing. The Friends of the New Orleans Public Library announced special holiday hours for their book sale. Carriage House Books, behind Ladder Library, is open every Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday from 10 to 2 through December 23rd. And Algiers Books at the Algiers Regional Library is open every Saturday from 10 to 2, also through December 23rd. The New Orleans Book Festival at Tulane University announced its much-anticipated lineup for the third annual Literary Festival. More than 100 national best-selling and critically acclaimed authors will appear on the Uptown Campus March 14th through 16th. The three-day celebration is free and open to the public, and a full schedule will be released at the end of February. Authors appearing include Stacey Abrams, Nana Kwame Ajibrenya, Kwame Alexander, Kurt Anderson, Charles M. Blow, Douglas Sprinkley, David Brooks, Ken Burns, Maureen Dowd, Jonathan Igg, Drew Faust, Richard Ford, Eddie Glaude Jr., Steve Gleason, C.W. Goodyear, Annette Gordon-Reed, Maggie Haberman, Yuri Herrera, Walter Isaacson, John Lawrence, Kiese Lehman, Michael Lewis, Wesley Lowry, Ayana Mathis, Corey Miles, Michelle Miller, Jamila Minix, Jerry Mitchell, Mark Morial, Admiral Mike Mullen, Adam Nagurney, Viet Tan Nguyen, Joe Nocera, Michelle Norris, Jessica Norwood, Lawrence O'Donnell, Brandon B. Mike Odoms, Imani Perry, General David Petraeus, Charisma Price, Emily Rabiteau, Adolph Reed, Emily Reese, Jeffrey Rosen, Clint Smith, Katie Simpson-Smith, Tracy K. Smith, Kara Swisher, Jake Tapper, Jessamyn Ward, and many, many more. Check out bookfest.tulane.edu for info. Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books, with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in The Reading Life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Ingmeyer and is a production of WWNO. You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at wwno.org. And you can email us at the reading life at wwno.org.